electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the post-COVID world. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA chief on starting school and getting vaccines to market. I don't think this is one and done with COVID. I think we're going to need to innovate these vaccines and change them perhaps annually. Shareholders look out. SEC chairman Jay Clayton urges investors to keep an eye on management and encourages board transparency during the COVID crisis. This is something where good corporate hygiene is essential. And Kodak's second act, the one-time corporate giant's reinvention as a drug company. We need to bring this back. We have to protect our shores. We have to protect our people. We need to have these pharmaceuticals here. It's like the new war. Those stories and more. Becky Quick is in the house. Well, on the show. It's Wednesday, July 29th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And Joe, I'm in the house, my house. Right. Good to see you guys. Wait, where did someone who's right. on vacation go on vacation? Welcome back. That, that was the question yesterday. How does that work? Uh, nowhere. Nowhere. But, but Just hang, hang out with the family and sleeping in it. Man, yeah. that was good. I think that's what happens. Yeah. Exactly. The, you go right through yeah. four, 3.50 a.m. You just... It's not even on the radar, is it? (laughs) Just you go right through. Nope. Don't even notice. You might look over. Might look over. It's 3.50. Those losers are up. Uh, Anyway. Making headlines, Moderna is reportedly planning to price its coronavirus vaccine at $50 to $60 per course. That's at least $11 more than another vaccine, proposed vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. The Financial Times reports the price would apply to the U.S. and other high-income countries, uh, but that the final price has yet to be determined. And a new federal report has found uh, that growing outbreaks in a number of states have become serious enough to place them in what is called the red zone. Officials are being urged to impose tighter restrictions in those locations. Uh, As of July 26, 21 states are now in the red zone, with Missouri, uh, North Dakota, and Wisconsin, the latest additions. Becky. Thanks, Joe. Joining us now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He, of course, is former FDA commissioner and now a CNBC contributor. He is on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And Dr. Gottlieb, it's great to see you this morning. Thank you. I was hoping to walk through with you the the back-to-school situation, and I've been focusing on New Jersey very closely because that's where my kids go to school, but my guess is this is kind of playing out the same in just about everywhere in the country right now. Um, You have people in towns on both sides of this debate, some who are very eager for the schools to get back open, be as close to 100 percent capacity and open five days a week as possible. And you have other people who are very concerned about how the schools are going to do this. They want to make sure that there's only half capacity. They only want to be going partially, going through part of these times. 
Um, this is a bit of a mess. And in New Jersey, the teachers union yesterday said they don't think that September 8th is a decent start date, that there's enough time to get things done and get things done safely between now and then. And it just, for the first time, made me think that we may not see school opening in, in some country, in some uh, counties and in some states. What, what do you think is happening? What's the latest feeling you're getting on the ground? Well, the school districts are starting to survey parents, and what they're finding is a lot of parents don't want to send their kids back to school. And some of the school districts, for example, in Maryland, Howard County, Montgomery County, made decisions to go to a distance learning model, in part because a very high percentage of parents said they weren't going to send their kids back to school. I think in parts of the country where they've gotten the virus under control for now, they have the opportunity to try to reopen the schools for in-class learning, but they need to take measures to prevent outbreaks from happening in the schools. There's a lot we don't know about this virus, as we've discussed on this show. And we're learning that, you know, kids can spread the infection. They're less likely to get infected, but they, but they do spread the infection when they're symptomatic. We're also seeing, for example, rising hospitalizations among kids in Florida right now, which is concerning, you know, which is an indication that it's been epidemic down there and kids did, in fact, get infected. So I think school districts need to be careful. And quite frankly, as we head into the school year, you're going to probably start to see more cases of bad outcomes, albeit a low number, but a sufficient number that I think it's going to give more people pause because we've had a very big epidemic in the South. And we know, you know, children do have sometimes a delayed response to the virus. They do develop this multi-system inflammatory syndrome. Um, and so you're likely to see a wave of those unfortunately happen in these southern states where we know a lot of children have been infected. And that could tip the hand of a lot of districts as well. Uh, looking at it, the, the teachers union has, has raised issues saying that the, the, the guidelines aren't clear at this point. They, they don't feel safe. They don't feel like they have the resources to get through some of these things. And I, I looked at the staff survey. You know, the parents were, have been surveyed. The staff has been surveyed in our town. And of the 53 staff in the school, more than a third of them said they would not come back if school was there with 100 percent capacity five days a week. Um, how can you possibly open the schools in that scenario, even, even if you want to? It's going to be difficult, and we need to make sure that you know, teachers are protected as well because they're at higher risk. They need proper protective equipment, physical distancing from the students um, where they can do it. There's things schools can do to lower the risk, it's things that schools in other countries did successfully, wearing of masks, keeping students in very small pods or cohorts so you don't have the whole student population intermingling, de-densifying the school where you can and creating physical distancing, so maybe going to a hybrid model or staggering the start time of the day. Um, putting in better HVAC systems, better filtration for the air in the schools, trying to use um, windows rather than air conditioning, trying to hold classes outdoors where you can as you head into the fall until you head into the winter. So there's mm -hmm. steps schools can take at the start of the year to try to lower the risk, things that other countries have done successfully. But really, no country has opened the schools against the backdrop of an epidemic, with the exception maybe of Sweden. But Sweden also took a lot of measures in their schools, for example, going to a pod model, keeping students in small groups. So I do think that if we're going to open the schools, and I think we should, we need to take measures to prevent outbreaks. That can be done in states like Connecticut, probably New Jersey, Michigan, states that have brought the infection rate down. More difficult in states that are still having an epidemic to reopen against that backdrop. Where do, where do school sports fit in in this? I mean, we, we've talked about what Major League Baseball is dealing with right now. Um, I, I know in our state, um, most of the kids are practicing right now. If it's lacrosse, if it's volleyball, if it's any of those things, they are actively practicing right now. Is there room for both? Well, what I would 
be urging is prioritize in-class learning. Prioritize getting the kids back into the class. Make sure you can do that successfully. Hold off on the extracurricular acti activities for now. Things like sports that not only um, aren't, you know, sort of directly relevant to in-class learning, but also create more risk. You know, if you have sports, you have kids in a locker room, you have kids in close contact, that's going to be a vehicle by which infection can get spread and then get reintroduced into the school. So I would be urging districts to hold off on that. Maybe there'll be a point into the year when things go well that we can restart those activities, but we should take it slow, see how it goes, make sure we're successful about getting kids back into the classroom first. Hey, Scott, I, I hesitate to ask you about this Moderna story just because um, the, the price point for Moderna's vaccine, at least the early look at it, looks like it's going to be higher than for Pfizer and for uh, another company that's already gotten it out there. You are on the board at Pfizer. But just from a public policy perspective, just in terms of pricing, I mean, personally, I look at it and think, let's just get a, a vaccine before we worry about how much it costs or start fighting over some of these things. But what do you think uh, of the issues that have been raised on this? Well, look, I'll, I'll make a sort of general point about the pricing, not relative to any specific company. I think, you know, if these things end up getting priced around the price of a flu vaccine, which the Pfizer price was in that neighborhood of, of how flu vaccine gets priced for the whole, the whole course of the COVID vaccine versus the cost of a flu vaccine, you know, I think that that's a price that's going to allow in the long run a sufficient margin and some profit that can get reinvested back into manufacturing and back into a next generation vaccine. Making these vaccines isn't trivial. It has to be done at a massive scale. Um, you know, it's not as high a margin business as making small molecule drugs. And I'm not saying it's not profitable, but it's profitable when you do it at a tremendous scale. And it takes continued investment in manufacturing innovation. There was a statistic that Sanofi, which provides more than a billion vaccines to the world, has more than 10,000 employees doing that. And so it's, it's a business that requires a lot of manpower, a lot of large scale manufacturing. So you want the companies to have some kind of margin, a reasonable margin, to put back into, you know, in innovations in manufacturing, next generation vaccines that are hopefully going to be more protective. So you see a continuous cycle of innovation because I don't think this is one and done with COVID. I think we're going to need to innovate these vaccines and change them perhaps annually. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. Great to see you. Thanks a lot. Some investors of TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, are looking to take over the social media app and as part of that, they are valuing it at about $50 billion. Uh, Sequoia and General Atlantic, uh, of course, uh, were early investors in that company. They want to take it back to effectively make it a U.S.-American company, in part because of so many of the privacy concerns around uh, its Chinese ownership. Meanwhile, at a $50 billion valuation, guys, you think about it, you have uh, Twitter not even at a $30 billion valuation. I think Snap right now is just over... 30, 33 billion dollars and TikTok now would be at 50. And they say that there's there's even more acquisition interest. It's an interesting development on a morning when Mark Zuckerberg is going to be testifying in front of Congress about competition in the marketplace. TikTok didn't even exist, I don't think, you know, 24, 36 months ago. 2020 revenue, a billion dollars, 50, 50 billion, 21. One, one, but 2021 expected six Billion. That is called that is called growth. Um, you know, if you you haven't made an actual video, have you Sorkin of, of uh, TikTok? You, you... I haven't made. I have, I've I've lurked. But then, by the way, I deleted it from my phone the day that Amazon. If you remember briefly, there was about a three-hour window where they told all their yeah. employees to delete it, and I actually deleted it too because I thought to myself, you know what? Maybe, maybe there's something to this. I don't know whether there's something to it or not, but that's the exact. That is the reason 
that, that these companies, Sequoia and General Atlantic and others, want to make it a U.S. company and, and turn control right. to uh, back back to the United States or not back, but to the United States mm -hmm. so that so that people don't have these kind of concerns. But no, I have not done a right. I was thinking I should do a lip sync. That's what I was thinking of. What do you think? Uh, Rather I, than I, a dance. It's up to you. Uh, I'm not no, gonna he's going to twerk. Uh, yeah, yeah, twerking or something. What's the how long? What's as long as it can be? What? What do you know? What? What's the upper end of the the length? Of, and I, the special effects you can put a minute, in, maybe? And, huh? It's, I don't think it can be more than a minute or two, that. right? Way shorter yeah. than that. Most of them are way shorter. We than should that. do a squawk dance. I don't like dancing. Or a lip sync. Uh, that's We're possible. Not that hip. What about a lip sync? Maybe I don't know. No, Call me, uh, no I, I could I lip sync know. you, Joe, or I could lip sync. Becky could lip sync. You know, Becky can. I'm not TikTok not, ready. I'm not even talking about a song. Okay. You know, there's that woman uh, that, that that she's a hysterical comedian who lip syncs uh, Trump. Oh, I've you seen that. You do it based on a just yeah. a That's person. That's a TikTok. Okay, yeah. I'm familiar Sarah, with this. Sarah, what's then. her name? Familiar with this then. All right. I mean, remember when Instagram got bought? I mean, it was like, what are they paying for this for? And now it's like ubiquitous. So I don't know, maybe 50 billion yeah. makes sense. Seems like a lot, but I, you know, I, nothing is out of the ordinary anymore. Next on Squawk Pod, SPACs, SPACs everywhere. Why the SEC chairman says retail investors should think twice before buying into the blank check companies gaining market popularity. These are complicated instruments. There are incentives that are different from the incentives that are in place for management during an IPO. Investors, particularly our retail investors, they need to understand this. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin uh, along with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick, who is back with us uh, after a little bit of uh, much-deserved vacation. We know about uh, EBITDA. Now there's a new thing. It's called EBITDOC, and that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, and now COVID. So exclude that. Some investors are raising questions about how companies are accounting uh, for the coronavirus and relates to compensation and so many other issues. Joining us to discuss this and so much more is SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Jay, we are in the middle of earnings season, and, and we appreciate you joining us. But this is this is an issue because one of the things you're seeing companies say is this COVID thing, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, don't pay attention. Do you think that's the right message for investors? Uh, Andrew, thanks for having me uh, having me back on and uh, in, in the earnings season and to talk about this. Uh, look, it, let me say this. By and large, uh, the public company reporting uh, first quarter results and now in second quarter results that we have seen, uh, people are doing a good job uh, talking about the stress uh, that their companies are facing, uh, where they stand currently, and and the outlook. Um, as a as a general answer to your question, uh, do we expect people to say, uh, "Don't pay any attention to uh, where we stand today"? Uh, no, we don't. Um, we expect public public companies uh, to tell the market uh, where they do stand today. Uh, that is particularly important. 
so uh, uh, let me just be clear on that. I wanted to also ask you, because it relates, I mean, you're looking at stock prices that have moved and moved higher, relates to compensation uh, to some degree. And I, I, I want to get your take on some of the more outsized compensation plans. But more generally, one of the things you saw amidst this COVID pandemic were companies and their CEOs saying that they were going to take less money, uh, less in salary. But one of the things that hasn't changed, and in fact, in some cases, uh, they loaded up on stock uh, during this period. This is something you actually saw happen in the post-financial crisis period uh, now more than 10 years ago. What do you make of that phenomenon? Andrew, there's a, there's a, there's a lot going on here that, um, let, let's break that down. Uh, we, we, as a, we as a society, we, we like equity compensation in that it aligns the interests of management with the interests of shareholders. Um, when boards of directors set that compensation, they not only need to think about uh, you know, amount and, uh, and alignment in that way, but also uh, at what time are, are people able to uh, liquidate and take some of that off the table? And uh, what we're in here is a period of uncertainty. And we like to see when people put compensation packages in place an explanation not just of how it works, but how the board assessed that that compensation package was indeed aligning interests. So let me let me take one example, which is is clearly the one that's been in the news. You've you've seen Elon Musk now become uh, one of the wealthiest uh, people in the world, uh, in large part because of a remarkable compensation plan that, depending on your perspective, you could you could argue got more skin in the game than anybody. Um, and is not being paid a quote-unquote salary, but boy, has he made a lot of money that people did not ever expect. Uh, on the other side, people say that this is a gross injustice. Andrew, you know, you know that I'm not going to comment on any particular uh, compensation plan or, or CEO, uh, but you know, what investors should understand is how long is an alignment of interest in place. When someone receives uh, a large uh, grant or a performance-based uh, compensation, is that something that they can liquidate uh, in six months or six years? And are they going to be staying aligned with shareholders over the long term? That's just one of, of many questions that you know, boards generally, well-functioning boards, ask themselves and that they disclose to the public. Jay, I know you don't like talking about specific people or companies, but the other thing I was going to ask, and it's in relation to Elon Musk, Looks like he's trying to antagonize you. I don't really understand it. I, I guess everybody could say whatever they want, but you know, he puts out this tweet. I don't know if you saw it. I'm sure you must have. Someone must have sent it to you where he writes SEC, three-letter acronym, middle word is Elon's. I'll leave it to the audience to, to try to figure out what that is. But how often do you have CEOs that are publicly antagonizing your agency? Well, Andrew, look, you know, we have public markets. Uh, we're public servants. Uh, you, you accept, you accept uh, the, the good and the bad of the, of the public sphere uh, uh, when you do these jobs. It, it's, let's put it this way. I have nothing to say about it. Uh, well, let me, let me ask you then a different question unrelated to Elon Musk, but related to uh, Moderna. But we can, we can put it in more general terms if it will if allow you to answer the question, which is we had the CEO of Moderna on earlier this week. And, um, you know, he sold some stock, said it was part of a, one of these 10B, uh, 10B51 plans uh, and said that the company had a policy that wouldn't allow him to change it. Uh, now, we also noticed that he may have changed it in the middle. Those plans were set up a long time ago. 
Uh, and of course, uh, none of us uh, had any idea that the, the stock would be at this level right now. If you look at the big picture, I have sold less than 1% of my holdings in the company uh, since the company went public. Is there anything that prevents them from not changing their plan once it's in place, just so we're clear? Because I think there's a lot of questions about insider selling, especially among some of these biotech companies that are involved in vaccines right now. Yeah, look, let's take a step back. And, and you know, I, 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 I love that you always try to get me to comment on specific companies, but I'm not going to do that. I will comment on uh, executives uh, selling stock, 10B51 plans and the like. This is something where good corporate hygiene is essential, okay? Uh, you can't put a plan in place unless you, the company, and the executives are on a level information playing field with the market. Um, just like you can't sell stock um, as, a, as an insider unless you're on a level playing field with the market. So you put a 10B51 plan in place, uh, let's, let's go back to the, the, the point I made uh, previously, which is when a board looks at these, they should look at how much uh, people are taking off the table and think about that, and that should be disclosed. Now, when you have one in place, um, generally uh, you leave it in place. That's the whole point here. You've made the decision. It's on autopilot. Everybody knows. Um, but have people in the past taken comfort that they can cancel those plans? Yes, they have, and they do. Um, it's good okay. corporate hygiene, I believe, that if you cancel such a plan, that you don't put it back in place for some time. Otherwise, it looks like you're actually sort of you know, affecting trading. Um, but do people cancel plans? Is it, is it a practice? It is. And then final question for you, Jay, this morning, which is SPACs. They're everywhere. Blank, these blank check companies. How much is a, a SPAC an indictment of the IPO process today and how difficult it is for companies or how uncomfortable they feel about going public in this environment? You know, I, I would not characterize uh, SPACs as an indictment of uh, the IPO process. We, we see plenty of IPOs and, and the price discovery process that goes uh, along with IPOs is, is fairly well uh, tried and tested and, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's an indictment. It is an alternative. Uh, for raising capital and then right. finding a particular target. But, Andrew, what I want to say here is uh, these are complicated instruments. Uh, there are incentives that are different from the incentives that are in place for management during an IPO. I investors, particularly our retail investors, they need to understand this. I mean, there, is, there is often a substantial compensation uh, package in the form of uh, equity for the SPAC sponsor. Also. Um, when the SPAC does its acquisition, uh, there are incentives that may not be aligned with shareholders. You need to look closely, if you're a retail investor, at what the incentives are. I'm not saying they're good or bad, but you need to understand the differing incentives in a SPAC. Okay. Uh, Chairman Jake Clayton, appreciate uh, you joining us, as always, this morning uh, and helping us uh, through all of these uh, various issues. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Coming up, Kodak is back with a new focus. The company's executive chairman on remaking corporate history. One of our core companies has always been chemistry for over 100 years. We realized we could do more. The government realized they could do more. They kind of reached out and we found a path that makes a lot of sense for the uh, American public to help bring the pharmaceutical protections back to America. More Squawk Pod after this.
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Let's talk about a Kodak moment this week. The camera company's name was synonymous with your life's memories for over a century. Its first tagline, you press the button, we do the rest. Founded in 1888, a giant in American life and pop culture, in 1976, 85% of all cameras and 90% of all films sold in the U.S. was Kodak. The newest, smartest way to take color slides is with a stylish Kodak Signet 40 camera. I actually looked on YouTube for vintage Kodak commercials. I highly recommend this pastime. Kodak film for the times of your life. And the brand identity is steeped in 20th century Americana and boomer nostalgia. A company that gave us new ideas like Kodachrome, Instamatic, Point and Shoot. Kodak fell behind the digital revolution. Now every smartphone has a camera. In 2012, Kodak filed for bankruptcy and re-emerged a much smaller company focused on commercial printing. Recent market cap was about $115 million. Until an announcement of a second act shocked the business world yesterday. Eastman Kodak said it's moving into pharmaceutical ingredient production in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Kodak facilities will produce ingredients for a number of generic drugs. The U.S. government awarded the company a $765 million loan under the Defense Production Act, the first of its kind. President Trump spoke at a White House press conference about the news. Kodak Pharmaceuticals, it's a great name when you think of it, such a great name, was one of the great brands in the world. Then uh, people went digital and Kodak didn't follow, but now under very extraordinary leadership they are following and uh, they're doing something that's a different field and it's a field that they've really hired some of the best people in the world to be taking care of that company and watching that company, watching over it. But it's a breakthrough in bringing pharmaceutical manufacturing back to the United States. On Tuesday, shares of Kodak basically soared, tripled in value in one day and soaring again. We heard today from the leader of Kodak in this new chapter of the company's history. Here's Joe. Join us now for more on this deal. James Continenza, executive chairman of Eastman Kodak. It is good to see you and uh, welcome. Thank you for having me this morning. You're welcome. Is this a done deal? There are some people saying that the government's got to do some due diligence or this, this part of the, this agency of the government that, that is providing the loan. Do you expect this? We can bank on this, James, because we had quite a move in the stock yesterday. Well, we feel very comfortable that we can bank on it. We're, we have some work to do, but they wouldn't have probably made the announcement and everyone come up and do what we did yesterday. We had uh, Dr. Navarro, we had, you know, Adam, 
there, who's the CEO of the TF. Uh, we also had uh, Rear Admiral Bolacek. Uh, so we, we feel very comfortable. We're going to get to the end game. We signed a letter of interest, and but we've been working on this for a few months. We, we feel very comfortable. We're going to get to the end game, or we wouldn't be probably sitting here. In recent uh, correspondences with shareholders and the like, I don't think there was any even intimation that uh, that, that something like this was in the works as recently as May. What was it? Was there, James? You know, I, I, about two months ago we started, so approximately, but they were very, very high initial talks. You know, when the pandemic started, Kodak wanted to see what we could do to participate. We were making hand sanitizers, face shields, PCB boards for ventilators, and we started going down this path, but it was so early, there's nothing really to mention. We were just, one of our core companies has always been chemistry. Uh, for over 100 years, we've been doing chemistry, and we do make some non-starter materials, non-regulated KSMs today. We realized we could do more. The government realized they could do more. They kind of reached out and uh, we, we found a path that makes a lot of sense for the uh, American uh, public to help bring the pharmaceutical protections back to America. I mean, we have seen a, a move in the stock and I, we just saw it today that, that is just absolutely staggering. I mean, we are in this environment where things like this have happened with, with some other names. I, I do have a question, though, about whether you can uh, lend any uh, insight into this. I mean, the volume is, is very average, was very average uh, in Kodak. On last Friday, 74,000. Uh, last Thursday, 80,000. Last Wednesday, 52,000. On Monday, 1.648 million shares. And then Tuesday, the news came out. How do you account for that, James? Any idea whether, whether someone had, had wind of this? I mean, we didn't see the move in the stock until Tuesday, but that, that is so far and away. That's a multiple of the average daily volume over the, over the last, you know, over a long period of time. Any idea whether this got out? I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, this has been a pretty tight-kept secret, obviously. We made it to the last day, basically. So um, I couldn't tell you what influenced that or didn't. I don't know if it was a well-kept. It doesn't look like it was a well-kept secret. That that, well, that we, we, we knew for over a week. <laughs> okay, so this is a um, a loan that gets paid back, like uh, like a lot of uh, corporate loans would be paid back in 25 years or so. And the, I guess the question I have: Can is this going to be very profitable for Kodak? Because there was a reason that we outsourced a lot of the basic ingredients as a country to these pharmaceuticals to places where it was much cheaper to do this in India or in China or wherever. Is this going to be profitable for, for Kodak? It is. There's, you know, again, right, our expertise has been in chemical manufacturing. We're repurposing about a third to 40% of the buildings we have so we don't have new construction to, uh, within this uh, entity as we build out. So by repurposing, we're using buildings that we already own. That drops a lot of our costs. And then through continuous manufacturing, Manufacturing and innovation, we feel that we can become very competitive. Uh, the park we're building in is Eastman Business Park. It's 1,200 acres, has its own power, steam, waste recovery, rail system. I mean, the infrastructure is there. I'm not paying for that. Those are huge costs that come out of this, you know, this entity, and uh, that gives us a very competitive advantage going forward. So yes, I think I think we'll be very competitive. I mean, I actually think, are, are you going to be making the precursors for hydroxychloroquine, too? Is that part of the, I mean, is this all traced back to the, the president in, in, some, in some way, James? This just isn't COVID-19. This is truly, you know, what was shown through the pandemic is the break in the supply chain. 90% of, you know, all, most medications aren't even made in the United States. Right. We can't have that. We consume approximately 40% of them. 
And we need to bring this back. It's literally, this is why this is part of the Defense, and the Defense Production Act. We have to protect our shores. We have to protect our people. We need to have these pharmaceuticals here. We're not the only ones doing it. You've seen India do it, Japan do it, others are following. You must have these drugs. It's almost, it's like the new war, if you think about it. We have to help protect American citizens. So, you know, despite even the, the margins, right, we, we also, Kodak has an obligation as a great American company to take part in yes. this. And, and you are, your factories are ready to go with, with the quality control. These are not uh, uh, final product pharmaceutical. These are precursors that you still have to worry about quality control, obviously, but very similar to the specialty chemicals from the photography business. And you feel confident that you can make these perfectly. I'm, I'm going to use the word very, <laughs> and I don't use that often. Um, the, the key starter materials we're doing today, there's regulated and unregulated. We've been making the unregulated ones for other pharmacies. We can't disclose who they are the last couple of years. So, okay. you know, we, we are doing this today. And then we'll get certified to do the regulated. So as we build up the facility. So I'm very confident we will continue making them today as we are doing. All right. We'll be watching. Thanks, uh, James. We appreciate it. James Continenza, so executive much. chairman of, uh, of Kodak. That's the podcast for today. On our rundown tomorrow, Silicon Valley goes to Washington, sort of. The CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, and Facebook are appearing virtually before a House Antitrust subcommittee today. That is some serious juice all in one room. I, I was thinking about the big stimulus. If these guys just tipped Congress, you know, like 20%, I think we could do the next <laughs> round. But a trillion, right? I mean, I think, we, I think they're good for a trillion anyway, aren't they? I mean, if they, uh, you know, if they put their pool their resources. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.